Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of Eastern Equine Encephalitis. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2020 by Merck Animal Health. Our guest for this episode is equine veterinarian Maureen Long, who has a DVM, a PhD, and is a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. She is a professor of virology and microbiology at the University of Florida. Her teaching and research interests include several equine and large animal infectious diseases, including EIA and West Nile virus. Thank you very much, Dr. Long, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk to veterinarians about EEE. And we want to know, want you to know that if you're listening to the podcast, please visit equimanagement.com because Dr. Long will again present a webinar along with her podcast that you can watch on equimanagement.com. So thank you very much, Dr. Long, for joining us. Hi, Kimberly. It's always great to be here. I'm going to grab my screen. And I always enjoy uh, meeting with Kimberly Brown, and I appreciate her commitment to our equine friends. And uh, for this podcast, I'm going to cover Eastern Equine Encephalitis Virus. We'll go over the clinical signs, diagnostics, and prevention. First, though, I'm going to talk about the public health aspects and where the veterinarian fits into this disease because it is one of the most uh, dangerous diseases on the planet for both uh, horses and people. And so most states have this type of setup where they um, basically, the veterinarian, as you can see, becomes the first person that initiates any kind of testing and reporting. And then once the result goes to the state veterinarian, there is a lot of uh, background activities that are instituted, which will um, basically include the mosquito control, your Department of Health, um, and a lot of other types of testing to find the sources of the virus and also to communicate with people and horse owners what their risk is. So it's really important that we understand this disease, we understand if we see it or something like it, that we need to test for it uh, and we need to follow up with the testing. It's not enough to just bury animals when suspected of viral viruses. I know it may cost an owner a lot um, for to do a necropsy, but uh, it's very important, uh, especially with a horse that dies and there's no diagnostics done, that we do get a postmortem. Rabies is right there um, at the top of the list. Uh, it very much looks like end-stage Eastern. And so both of these diseases have very important health um, implications. You may save a child because children are very susceptible to Eastern, um, though it's changing in some of its demographics. Uh, there are long-term effects for humans that are infected with this disease. Um, the other thing is we have similar, horses and humans have a similar disease uh, manifestations. And so it provides information um, that we gain on these animals, provides information regarding also human disease. So we're a real important cog in the wheel when it comes to animal disease diagnostics for the viruses. As I said before, it's one of the most pathogenic neurologic viruses on the planet. Um, the mortality is lower in humans around 45% because that because we have a lot of uh, things we can do to help uh, a human survive. But 
Even in those human cases, uh, they're never the same again due to long-term brain abnormalities. Also, horses uh, have about a grady, greater than 90% survival or gr greater than 90% uh, death and the, spontaneous, the, the mortality is spontaneous. As you can see, um, in human disease, there are always low-level numbers of cases. And, you know, you may say in the days of COVID, that's not a lot of cases. But if you think about these people having lifelong disease, it's very um, important uh, that we uh, prevent this disease in people and horses. Also, as I said before, a lot of the survivors of this disease are younger people or children, and they have lifelong mental uh, capacity problems. 2019, which is why uh, we're trying to get the word out about Eastern, it was the highest reported year for humans in, in, since reporting Eastern in the United States. So something's going on and we have a lot of activity with Eastern equine encephalitis. So as I said, um, we've had the highest number of cases ever reported in humans. Um, there's somewhere between 34 and 39 cases. Um, this is what was on uh, morbidity mortality report for last year, but sometimes we end up um, adding to those numbers with time as uh, we go back and realize that a person uh, really died of Eastern rather than another disease. There were, this involved, outbreak involved seven states and 21 counties. And if you think about it, um, this outbreak is a Northern outbreak for the most part. And it's a very, very wide season one that we're not used to seeing. Usually there's an onset around April or May, even in Florida. And usually by mid-August, we have uh, pretty much seen the last of the activity. And so whether or not it's, you know, that we have warmer falls these days, there seems to be a lot of activity. Um, and it seems to be encroaching on the West Nile uh, season where um, West Nile seems to stay active more into October until the cold seasons. 94% of humans that had Eastern last year had encephalitis. The other 6% had meningitis. So all of the reported cases were neurologic. This year was a little different um, in that mostly we had people uh, affected that were older. They were mostly male. There was um, within this, this group um, of older males, there was 35% mortality. So as you can see, we really had um, more activity in older people. We usually see young um, babies being quite susceptible in the South, but in this case with this big cluster, of course we had children, but usually with an outbreak like this, that's not normal, we'll see more age groups involved. So also in 2019, we had a very high equine activity year. And as you can see, um, it's, it's basically highly widespread. It, it's not the highest we've had on record. One of the highest basically was back in 2000, 2004 and 2007. Um, and most of those cases were in Florida. Um, we have been seeing most of the cases in Florida as usual in Louisiana, which is expected, but we see a lot of activity again following where we see these human cases um, with, the, with a lot of activity in the northern states. So far this year, we, approximately, we have had approximately 100 
in two cases, and you can see the darker areas are where we've seen the cases, which are similar, similar to what we saw last year. And I expect that once this map is filled out, we're probably going to see the same activity. Michigan has a very, very high rate of activity, both in human disease and in animal disease. So Michigan is, also has historically had very high activity for West Nile. So um, possibly because of all the water surrounding it, uh, we don't know, but this is um, a very active area of, of both Eastern and West Nile virus. This is so far the Eastern seaboard. We've had um, activity um, in many states in Massachusetts. We haven't seen a lot in New York, but it's uh, um, maybe we will get some later reports. New York uh, can be very active. Massachusetts, basically in the Cranberry Bogs, have, has always been active. In fact, Eastern was first isolated, a little history update, was first isolated in Massachusetts, um, as was EIA. Um, and then so we've had activity all the way south to New Jersey, and then in the south we've had activity um, in the southeast. Here's Michigan, and as of September 27th, it's involved 34 animals in 14 counties. 32 of them have been equine. Um, there have been two deer, and we've had one human case that's been confirmed. Um, 4, 462,000 acres has been, have been treated with mosquito prevention. And by mosquito prevention, it, it includes spraying, larviciding, and basically rooting out mosquito habitat. But that's a lot of acreage for the state of Michigan to cover, especially in the face of COVID. In Wisconsin, we have another cluster of activity and also, Wisconsin right now has ha happens to have a very hot cluster for COVID, so they have a lot of activity of disease on their hands right now. Um, but as you can see, it's actually north to central north Wisconsin where there's um, a lot of eastern activity. We, you would maybe expect it a little more south where it's warmer, but as you can see, it's becoming very much a northern disease. Of course, Florida, because I'm here in Florida and I basically watch it very closely, um, you can see how busy we are um, when it comes to uh, mosquito-borne illnesses. And we don't all, we, we, we also worry about other things like a lot of West Nile activity. We've even got some dang activity. Uh, and uh, in the past we had Zika virus, but as you can see, there's areas along um, the coast and in Florida that where we can end up with, um, by our sentinel chickens, we can find a lot of West Nile and Eastern all in, um, in different areas. And these then, as I talked before, identifying the animal and the chicken activity basically sets up for how we do our alerts and our public health alerts. So it's all very coordinated. And that's pretty much what I wanted to show you is that once you end up with this map at the end of the year, these diseases are all interrelated into public health. But a little bit about Eastern, um, the map is changing. Um, and as I said before, um, this is mostly Florida activity, but it really follows even the northern activity. This is where I said we usually have West Nile, that's later, but right now, basically what we're seeing is the peak 
being extended and flatter over several of the later summer months. Um, and generally, the areas where we see activity will focus, and that's what we're seeing in Michigan, Massachusetts, and Wisconsin, is that we have these continual focal outbreaks. So it's really important for, for people traveling or working in those areas to be aware that they're in a, in a zone of recurrent activity. And again, as you see, just I'm focusing a little bit on Florida to show you that um, basically, again, we, we usually have these peak activities around June or July, but um, as things have progressing, we're seeing later and later activity. So of course, there's gonna be differences in breeds across the country, but by far and away, um, most of the breeds affected are going to be had been reported as quarter horses. And the reason for that is, is several fold. One is we have most, mostly quarter horses in this country. The other thing though, quarter horses are generally ranch and farm horses. And so they're going to be out in the environment and probably exposed to more mosquitoes. The other thing is um, quite possibly ranch and farm horses are of less value and they don't get as much um, vaccinating uh, which we'll cover a little bit uh, more about um, the breeds. We also have issues with draft horses, and we have we see issues with draft horses in the in the northern states and warm bloods. Obviously, there's more warm bloods in the in the northern states, but the draft horses generally are a population that see less vaccinating, and so that's my theory on the draft horses. Eastern, the age distribution up until recently has been similar to humans in that we have the younger horses that tend to be uh, more susceptible to, to disease. Now, this age distribution might have been dis different before we had vaccines. And so one could make the argument that as horses become more uh, resistant with vaccine, repeated vaccines, that's probably why we're seeing less horses um, in the middle age groups, but where we definitely see more disease is in the um, weanlings through uh, about two to four years of age. And the other thing is a horse can be vaccinated and get disease. Um, and I want you to note that the times since vaccination will increase in terms of those animals that will um, be susceptible. So as you can see, that annual booster is really important for horses. But of course, if you look at it, um, the number one horse that is affected with Eastern equine encephalitis is, is, are those that are not vaccinated. So this is, um, this is a horse that um, came to the clinic. It, had a, it was four years old. It was a ranch Tennessee Walker. It actually had blood work that indicated it, it might have had um, some liver disease and they were thinking Tyler's. It eventually became um, recumbent and comatose. Uh, because it died spontaneously, the horse um, what, had a rabies performed post-mortem and it was rabies negative, West Nile negative and Eastern positive. And these horses can be incredibly um, they can be almost violent, like a rabies horse. Um, they're very much out of it. Um, this horse is banging himself around. Um, they can be dangerous, um, but they're also very dangerous to themselves. Um, this horse is still on its feet. 
um, very much looking at that point like a liver horse and then went down and became recumbent and um, basically what um, uh, basically was on the verge of dying spontaneously when they 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 euthanized it at the end but it would have been it would have been considered a spontaneous death so it's not a disease you want to see animals with Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the makers of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. So what are some of the clinical signs? So these are based... This is based on um, basically about 200 cases we had, um, we've had in the clinics. And um, a lot of times by the time they come to us and you're gonna see this, this uh, things going to red is this disease is highly progressive. They can come in at the point where they're mildly depressed and then pretty soon they're completely out of it. They, a lot of times if they're walking, they're ataxic and they look like, a, uh, they, they can even look like a wobbler because they don't, um, they, they basically uh, still have their muscles. They have not had, they've not been long enough uh, with the disease um, where they've lost any muscle mass. So it can be a nice, big, thick looking, strong two-year-old that's, um, that's pretty ataxic. Pretty soon within 24 to 48 hours, that animal's, I guarantee you, going to become recumbent if it's a non-vaccinated uh, Eastern horse. They're not, however, as weak as you would see with a West Nile horse. Of course, weakness is relative when they're so ataxic. If you pull their tail, they fall over. Um, they will then get into this aimless wandering around like you saw that horse. They will intermittently head press. They will be hyperexcited. Many horses, by the time they're in a coma, they appear blind um, and many of them will experience seizures. I think in my last webinar on West Nile, I talked about cerebrospinal fluid. Cerebrospinal fluid is a very important um, component of your diagnostic workup. Uh, and I want to point out that Eastern uh, is very, um, it, it's very, it's almost pathognomonic as far as um, the CSF tap. It's primarily neutrophils um, and, um, excuse me, it's primarily going to be neutrophils and they're polymorphs, and um, and so and these are hypersegmented. The protein may be high, as opposed to triple E, you may not have any cells, and then very very high protein, and it's xanthochromic. With West Nile and rabies, and even Western, a lot of times the the, the CSF tap is equivocal. It's not very remarkable. It can be a lymphocytic type of. Um, cell type, but not as fulminant and florid as an Eastern um, with all those neutrophils in it. And these are old hypersegmented neutrophils um, in, in the tap. So uh, when I was in practice, I would take joint fluid and I would take CSF fluid and I would go home, go back to the, the clinic and I would do a diff quick. This is, you can basically perform this CSF tap on a horse and go back and pretty much um, hang your hat if it looks like this um, on the CSF tap. 
So, um, and then the other thing is if you euthanize a horse and can't get them in um, to, uh, to basically getting a postmortem, not only uh, will a serum, take the serum and run the IgM capture, but grab that CSF postmortem um, and go ahead and, uh, you know, is if you go to the ALO Atlanto occipital space, um, you can easily obtain the fluid from these animals post-mortem. So um, the diagnosis is relatively um, post-mortem, easy to obtain um, by a single serum and the macaliza. Um, this is actually the picture of um, West Nile macaliza, but they um, had a lot more than we had for Eastern when we did these analyses, and it looks a lot better. But basically, as you can see, there's a far distinction between um, the animals um, that have uh, that are positive for Eastern and West Nile. It looks like the same distribution as it does for Eastern. So it's a very, very important test to run. Um, you usually have to get a fourfold difference if you're going to do neutralizing testing on a horse that survives. Um, and sometimes that's more confounded by vaccination. I also want to talk about other species that can be affected. Um, obviously, um, uh, there are a lot of uh, hoof stock that can be affected. Um, camelids are affected in really, really um, active ears. Uh, deer can be affected but also exotic birds um, and raptites, especially. Um, this animal came to the clinic and it had a bloody diarrhea. And this is usually the sign of Eastern equine um, in uh, exotic birds. It's an intestinal infection and there's millions and millions and millions of particles of virus in this fluid. So these animals can be highly infectious and need to be handled with care and uh, a lot of people, when they get a sick animal, um, still um, won't call the veterinarian. And it's very important that if you have exotic birds on these equine farms, you also let the, the veterinarian or you also let the client know that if there's Eastern activity, these birds need to be vaccinated. And they actually do respond to the equine vaccine. They just need to have three um, injections when you start. So basically, I covered this before, um, and uh, I'm going to just talk a little bit to remind you that you want to go ahead um, and make sure that um, you test for the IgM. Uh, and actually, when you do the postmortem testing, if you do it in the field, you still have to be um, cognizant of the personal your personal protection equipment. It's very similar now. Everybody's gotten a lesson about personal protection equipment due to COVID. You would use uh, a mask if you had an N95, that would be great. You would use eye protection, uh, also double gloves. If you have some sort of clothing that is not your street clothing, that would that's also important, um, especially if you had a Tyvek gown and booties in order to protect your feet. Um, you have to make some choices in the field. Um, obviously, um, if the client can't afford to send uh, the, the carcass in, which is the safest, then disarticulation of the head and shipping to a pathologist uh, diagnostic laboratory 
um, is, um, is useful. Um, also, uh, a lot of clients won't let you disarticulate. Um, and then basically shipping the whole carcass is maybe the only thing um, that can be done. Most states for the diagnostic testing itself, there is no charge. It comes out of the public health uh, budget, but of course the charge of doing the postmortem uh, and maybe shipping and doing the postmortem at a diagnostic lab uh, does fall then to the owner. It's a relatively, um, it's not that hard of a diagnosis to make on horses that are euthanized because their brains are absolutely full of Eastern. And for you as the veterinarian, you may come in contact with Eastern. And that's why I emphasize the safest way is to um, ship the whole carcass. The next safest way is to go ahead and disarticulate the head. The most dangerous thing you can do is to try to pull that brain out of the um, out of the skull during um, uh, you, when you do the postmortem. So sending in the whole head, the contact um, with uh, CSF has less uh, virus in it. It's mostly in the brain, um, but there is some risk. So let's cover vaccination. All foals should re receive three boosters at six, seven, and nine months. Mares should re receive a booster one month before foaling. Horses age one to five years, I recommend that they should receive three injections of Eastern equine per year. And then once they're older than five years, if they're in a state of, if they're in a state of year round activity, they should receive Eastern equine twice per year. I don't know really what to think about this high activity going into September. If it is sustained, then I'm going to start recommending that even in these states, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, Massachusetts, where this recurring uh, activity is, if you're vaccinating your clients in February and March, absolutely, I think those horses need to be revaccinated in the very late summer. For the emus and other ratites, um, you require three injections per year, even after the first initial. Um, and even in the brooding females, keep them vaccinated for maternal antibody. Um, and the same way, only the young start at three weeks, three to four weeks a year instead of um, uh, in five to six months. And again, it's about the same age. In dogs, usually puppies have been reported um, and they're very young. Um, I have looked at dog, re, you know, canine responses to vaccines. Um, there's a limited number of studies and in a limited number of dogs I vaccinated, I had limited response to the vaccine. So I'm not sure what to tell you in terms of the efficacy of vaccinating dogs. As always, it's important to look at the barn site of your clients. Uh, basically, removal of standard standing water, removal of junk, removal of old tires, application of dunks to standing water, treatment of ponds, and, and uh, basically removal of the weeds, and even removal of the pond if it's consistently stagnant. I just want to say that we had one of the worst outbreaks in emus here in Florida, about 30 miles away, the owner uh, collected old tires and used those tires to make fences for his emus. 
and uh, basically wiped out the emus with uh, an outbreak of eastern on the property. And more than likely, most of the breeding ground was in those old tires. There were hundreds of old tires on that property. For mosquito control, um, obviously, um, you're going to rely on mosquito control of the county and um, having communication, having the client have communication with the county on what they can do to help them is important. Mosquito control people are very good at rooting out um, mosquito um, breeding grounds and helping clients um, uh, clean their premises. I myself do use premise sprays in barns and buildings. People will say, well, it's only going to last so long, but um, I seem to get sort of relief um, on a monthly or bi-monthly premise spray in my barn because some, you know, sometimes when it's really active, you can barely walk out there um, in the evening. And that's all I have today for you uh, for this webinar. Um, if you uh, have any questions, you can send them through Kim and uh, I can get back to you. Thank you. Well, thank you again, Dr. Long, for being our guest on today's episode of Disease Du Jour. And again, we want to remind our listeners to the podcast, if you want to watch the webinar, you can go to equimanagement.com under the Disease Du Jour podcast, and it will be posted on Dr. Long's article about the podcast. And thank you for listening to Disease Du Jour, and special thanks to our 2020 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Please listen and rate previous and future episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow Equimanagement on Facebook, or if you want to con contact me, please send an email to kbrown at aimmedia.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network. 